like both, but I'm just saying. I have. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed the acoustic set with uh, Steph and Quincy today. Uh, <laughs> And, and I, whenever I listen to myself sing, I think I sound like Kermit the Frog. So imagine it as Steph and Kermit the Frog acoustically, which I feel like that would be kind of a fun special acoustic Kermit the Frogs. Anyway, all right, so today we're starting with our series that uh, is uh, going through the Bible in a year. So if you haven't had a chance to look at our Facebook page, I kind of did these little graphics where I kind of broke down what we're doing as far as where we're going in the scriptures uh, it's not hard to figure out. I'm going to try to touch on every book of Scripture at some point. Um, but you'll see that some weeks I have multiple books together, so it'll be just a quick hit on each of those books, and then we'll go into a specific passage or passages in one of the books. Uh, I plan to have three vacation Sundays. It might never turn out to be two or three. So we have 49 weeks to cover 66 books uh, so we'll see how that goes. Today, we are starting with Genesis. I was thinking of starting with Job, but it felt right to start with Genesis. Job was probably written maybe before Genesis was written down, but obviously the stories of Genesis uh, are the oldest stories that we have in human history. So we'll, we'll talk about that. So I want to give you a little intro to the book of Genesis today. Uh, the series that I'm kind of overarching throughout the year, I'm calling this a story of God and his people, a God and his people. So thinking about who this God is that we worship and what he wants his people to be. I think that's ultimately what scripture is all about, is telling us who God is and who he wants his people to be, what it means to be uh, part of his people. As, as I thought about Genesis, I, I kind of wondered, I asked myself this question, I wonder what you know, anthropologists, human historians think about how human beings came up with the concept of God. So obviously as Christians, we believe God revealed himself to human beings, and that's how they came up with the concept of God. But what do people who maybe try to figure it out from a scientific, from a history, history research perspective think? And I found a lot of their answers kind of unsatisfactory, which probably makes sense because of, of my beliefs. But there was this idea, you know, that, that maybe uh, when human beings started to uh, have language and exchange ideas through images, they began to have imagination. And so because they knew of human beings, they imagined that there were bigger human beings that they never knew about, that they became these gods. Uh, I think for me, I'd probably, if I was researching that perspective, I'd probably say as a human being, you look at nature and you might wish that somebody could control nature. We just had a blizzard, right? And be like, oh, if I could pray to the God of blizzards and have the blizzard be under control, that's what I'd like to do. So maybe human beings, as they, they dealt with the forces of nature, started to say, okay, there's got to be a God in charge of this. Now, so we think about, if you think about all those like secular perspectives, it should contrast for us with what we see in Genesis. And Genesis as a story of God, stands out in the stories of its day for a story of God. When you look at Sumerian myths, Akkadian myths, all these different myths of cultures around Israel, they begin with a story of a God who's in a struggle with forces of chaos and nature. And, you know, basically these gods or God, these, this God or gods will always kind of uh, defeat the forces of nature and then create the world out of those forces of nature, and yet there's still this conflict going on, and you're not quite sure who's going to win. Obviously, God in Scripture is different than that. He is completely in control of all the forces of nature. Never do we have a single doubt that the God of Scripture has created the world and the universe as it exists, 
and he, all the forces of nature are from his hand, and he has power over them. So, so one thing that's important as we think about the story of God and his people is the distinctive character of the God of the Bible is that he is above and beyond our world, and yet intimately involved in every moment of our lives. That he creates human beings specifically for a relationship with himself. I'm sure that you've heard me and other pastors say that all the time, that God wants a relationship with us. Uh, but I like how uh, John Walton describes this. He's one of my favorite Old Testament scholars. And he says, when we talk about relationship with God in Scripture, what we're talking about is the opportunity and privilege to participate in bringing about the purposes of God. So let me say that again. The relationship with God in Scripture is the opportunity and privilege to participate in bringing about the purposes of God. So if you, if you want to briefly remind yourself about kind of the beginning of Genesis, I had a chance to preach on that at the beginning of Advent, and I'll put that sermon back up online in case you want to get a chance to listen to that. Uh, it's, of course, available on our live feed for December 5th. Uh, we were preached on Genesis 3, and in Genesis 3 we see this, this concept of human beings created for relationship with God and yet drifting from that relationship. And God's response to that drifting is both judgment and grace. Judgment intended to bring human beings back to where he can show them grace and reestablish that relationship, reestablish that opportunity for them to fulfill his purposes in the world. And that's kind of the whole flow of the book of Genesis. All right, so that's the introduction to the book. Today we're going to talk about Abraham. We're going to talk about what it means as God's people to trust him. So let's read in Genesis chapter 1, uh, chapter 15, sorry, chapter 15, and we're going to read at verse 1, verses 5 through 6, and verses 9 through 17. So I'm going to move around a little bit. Genesis 15, verse 1, 5 through 6, and 9 through 17. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Verse 5. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Verse 9. So the Lord said to Abram, Bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace, and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. When we look at Genesis, I think one of the things that we want to do is make sure that we kind of understand how these stories came to us. A and a lot depends on how old... Uh, you think some of these stories are. So for me, when I look at Scripture and I see the story of Adam and Eve, I really believe that story shows up about the time probably that human beings show up in the story. So these are really ancient stories, stories that existed before human beings really probably wrote anything. Now, I'm more than willing to believe that human beings were probably writing before a lot of anthropologists thinks, think they were, but obviously we see in Scripture with the story of Babel, it takes a little while 
for human beings to kind of get the whole language thing figured out, and then God kind of messes it up a little bit, right? So it makes sense to say, okay, there were a variety of, uh, there were thousands of years, maybe even 100,000 years of people telling these stories, and then finally, uh, at some point, a people who said, hey, this God has called us into relationship with himself, uh, and we want to know who he is and be able to pass that down on to our children, began to write those stories down. So that's kind of where we are in Genesis, right? Years and years, God's people have said, hey, there is a God. He created the world. He's in charge of the universe. There's one true God, and he wants a relationship with us. And here's how I know it. Here's the story of my great-great-great-great-grandfather Adam, or here's the great-great-great-great-grandfather Noah. Here's these stories of how God showed up and revealed himself to us. And so we go along these stories, and eventually we come to the story of Abram. And Abram, in Abram's story, we see God trying something a little bit new, but maybe not completely new. Because if you read Genesis 1, you know that God establishes a garden, and he's got a couple there, and he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to show the world who I am through my relationship with you. You're going to be my image to the world. And Adam and Eve listened to a snake, messed that up. Right? And then their, their descendants continue to mess things up, and we have this whole flood, and we have the Tower of Babel, and all these stories. They mess it up all the time. But down the line, God says, I'm not giving up on this idea. I've still got people I want to be in a relationship with. Let's try it with Abram. Now, if you read the story of Genesis, we know that Abram was part of a group of people who had multiple gods. They believed in multiple gods. So, uh, so God comes in the situation and says to Abram, wait, you, you think there's multiple gods? Wait, there's only one. I'm the one, and I want to be in special relationship with you. And my plan is for you to go to this land, this promised land, and your descendants are going to be as great as the stars in the sky, and all nations are going to be blessed through them. Now, in the passage we see today, God makes a covenant with Abra Abraham. So covenant comes up a few times in the Old Testament, obviously. Uh, Old Testament, New Testament, you can say testament or covenant. It's the same thing, uh, the same basic word, testament or covenant. God makes a covenant with Abraham. And a covenant is an agreement that makes allies. So God is saying, you and I are going to be allies, and I'm going to bring this about. So the, the hugely important moment in this passage is at the very end, after Abram listens to God and takes these animals and cuts them in half, and and Abraham falls into this deep and dark sleep and sees this vision of a fire pot going between the halves of the animals. See, in Abram's day, if you were a king who made a covenant with someone, you would take these animals, you would cut the animals in half. Sorry, it's a little gross to think about. You'd cut the animals in half, and the king who was making the covenant would walk between the pieces of the animals. And when he walked between the pieces of the animals, what he was saying is, if I don't fulfill my part of the covenant, may it be to me as it is to these animals. So when Abram falls into that sleep and he sees God, his presence, in the, in the smoking torch going through the animals, he's seeing this God speaking to him saying, if I don't fulfill my covenant to make your, nation, your uh, children as numerous as the skies and to bring about this nation that's going to bless all people on the earth, if I don't fulfill that covenant, may it be to me as it is to these animals. Incredible to think about a God making that deal, right? It's only something a human being should do. But here, God is saying, I am going to fulfill this covenant no matter what. So that's really important to see. All right, let's pick up later on a story of Abraham. Uh, but as we do that, just want you to think about, you know, hey, this is really God putting himself on the line, right? And, 
as I enter a new year, I think about the commitments I have in my life, the things I want to do, and, and the things where I'm spending my time and my energy. And, and I want to remember that I serve a God who is so committed to being my ally, to being on my side, to bringing about his purposes in my life, that he's willing to say, if it doesn't happen, I'll be torn apart. That's how much I care about fulfilling my promises to you. So if I serve that kind of God, I should reflect that in how I respond to him and how I try to be obedient to him, right? I need to live in the same way. With the same kind of commitment that he has, I need to be committed to him. All right, so let's look at our second passage today, Genesis chapter 22. Imagine the story is familiar. Let's, we'll, we'll read a couple verses here and stop real quick, and then we'll continue reading. Genesis 22, verses 1 through 2. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. So we've seen a picture of covenant. Now we see a command from God to Abraham. Now, a lot of things have happened between the story. Abraham and his wife, who was way too old to be able to have a child, conceived. And they had Isaac, their one and only son. There was this kind of interlude where Sarah's like, well, it's not really happening. Abraham's wife, Sarah's like, well, it's not really happening. So go have a child with my maidservant. And so he does that. And it turns out that's not God's plan. So they send that child away because Sarah's upset about it, but God still provides for that child and protects that child, Ishmael. Uh, so we see all that. We see God show up and protect Abraham in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and protects Lot, who's Abraham's nephew, protects him when there's a war going on. Over and over, God shows up and provides for Abraham. But after all this has happened, God says to Abraham, hey, look, I want you to go and sacrifice your son. I want you to go on this mountain and uh, sacrifice your son as a burnt offering. One thing I think is important as we look at this story is to realize that in Abraham's day, it would be very familiar for him to hear about a God demanding your only son, your firstborn son. Because many of the gods that they worshipped in the area where Abraham lived were into child sacrifice. You know, it's kind of one of those things that was a ritual thing of those days. Your first child would be offered to the gods so that you could have further children. Awful, right? Terrible. Can't imagine that? That's kind of what was expected in their time period. So it's interesting to see Abraham trying to figure out who this God is that he's in relationship with, all the experiences that he's had with them. Now this God's saying, I want your only son. That's interesting. Now, the first thing that I would say as I look at this passage is I, is I say, I think, I, I, I want to believe that, you know, as I look at this passage, I cannot imagine saying yes to God in this passage. I can't, I, I think, I, you know, one thing I would say is that if you're the kind of God that's demanding my son, you're not the kind of God I want to worship. I'm not going to do that. The other thing I guess I would say is like maybe I can think how much I trust Jesus. So if Jesus was looking me in the face, if I got to see Jesus face to face and he said, I need you to go up on a mountain and offer your only son, I think I would say, Jesus, I trust you with my son, but I can't do it. You're going to have to find something else to do. I know you've got a plan. I can't do it because this is my child. As I thought about this passage, though, I thought about the movie Finding Nemo, and, uh, and I've realized that I, I can't probably watch Finding Nemo like I used to anymore now that I have kids, because Finding Nemo is all about a dad learning that his son has to grow up and has to go and experience life. His child's not always going to be able to be protected in the sea anemone where they live. Uh, he's not going to be able to be protected there. He's going to have to let him go. It's all about learning that. So 
I do wonder if part of what I'm meant to see as a parent, as a father in this passage, is that God, as my children enter their room, as, that God is in charge of my child's life. That eventually I'm going to have to let my child go and let God direct their lives and trust him. Trust him with something I can't imagine trusting anyone with, that he is going to guide my child's coming and going forever and it's not going to be under my control. So I do think that's part of what we're supposed to see here, that God is saying to Abraham, as much as you value and love Isaac, Isaac is mine, and I've got a plan. All right, let's continue to look at this passage. It, I can't imagine doing what Abraham did, but it's the amount of trust that Abraham has in God that we're going to see here. Uh, Genesis 2, 22, continuing. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took, off, he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Now, I don't know if you caught there the, the crucial phrase that Abraham uses in this passage. So Abraham says, Here's what God said. I'm going to obey him. I'm going to take Isaac up on the mountain. I've cut the wood for the burnt offering. So my servant's here, I'm leaving them here, I'm going to take Isaac with me up on the mountain. And then do you notice that Abraham says to his servants, we will go up on the mountain and we will come back to you. I think that's hugely significant to know what Abraham expects. Because he doesn't have any reason that, if you read commentaries, they're like, well, maybe Abraham's deceiving the servants. There's nothing like that here in this passage. There's no presentation of Abraham trying to fool the servants. Abraham can tell his servants, hey, I'm going to go up on the mountain and sacrifice my, my kid, and his servants would just have to obey. They're his servants. So he doesn't have any reason to deceive his servants. He doesn't have any reason to, uh, to you know, try to say we so that Isaac doesn't know. Isaac's going to ask him what's going to happen, and Abraham's saying, hey, there's some kind of plan taking place. Trust me and follow along. Abraham says, we will come back because Abraham believes that at the end of this, Isaac is still going to be alive. At the end of this, Isaac's life is still going to be uh, preserved. That's immense confidence in God, right? It's interesting in the New Testament, uh, Paul says Abraham believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. He believed that if that's what it took, God would raise Isaac from the dead because Abraham believed that God's promise would be fulfilled. Now, I want to suggest to you a couple reasons why this is the case. First of all, if you go back and look at the story of Hagar and Ishmael, remember that maidservant that Sarah said, hey, Abraham, have a child with my maidservant? I think Abraham saw how Ishmael and Hagar were sent out in the desert, and God fulfilled his promise to them. He kept them safe. His son Ishmael is becoming an important person in his world. God has protected this son that he gave Abraham before Isaac, even though Abraham didn't do what he needed to do to protect him, right? God fulfilled his promise and protected his child. So he seemed to happen once. The other thing that I think is absolutely crucial in Abraham's mind in this moment is he says, I remember when God walked between those halves of the animals. And he said, no matter what, I'm going to fulfill my promise to you. If it takes me being torn in half, I'm going to fulfill my promise to you. So Abraham does something that I imagine no, none of us parents could imagine and walks up the mountain because he says, I know this God is going to fulfill his promise. Now, I imagine there are a few things that Jesus is going to ask you and I to do in the coming year. And I don't think any of them will come anywhere close to the commitment that he's asking Abraham to make here. 
But you and I will have a, a chance to decide how much we trust God and how much confidence we have in Him. That I can't afford that, God. I'm not sure that my finances will stretch that far. I'm really not comfortable with this. That's not how my personality is built. There's no way I have time for that, God. But he's the God who said, I'm going to fulfill my promise to you if it costs me everything. So how can I give him less? Let's continue reading. Genesis 22, 9 through 18. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there, arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac, told, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. He reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord cried out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting. I like, I like how the angel says, Here, here's what God's thinking, now I know. Now we know that God didn't, God doesn't, uh, he doesn't have things revealed to him that he didn't know, right? He's all-knowing. But the knowing here is relationship. God's saying, we have taken a new step in relationship together, you and I, Abraham, because you weren't, you were willing to offer me your son, your only son. This is the only time, it should be pretty clear, the only time in all of Scripture we ever see God make any kind of demand of someone like this to say, sacrifice your only son to me. The only time he does that. And I think it's hugely significant, and we can't miss, that this takes place on Mount Moriah. And Mount Moriah is where someday Jerusalem will be built. And you know who dies in Jerusalem. You know whose son, whose only son, lays down his life in Jerusalem. I do think it's hugely significant that twice in this passage, it's kind of weird, if you, if you read it again, you'll notice how weirdly it stands out, that twice God says to Abraham, your son, your only son. It's significant that he does that. Because it is meant to remind us who know about Jesus that God, who walked between those animals, someday became a human being like us and was torn apart because of his love for us. And it's, it's not so much, and, and this story kind of helps me understand, it's not so much, you know, sometimes you're about God punished Jesus for our sins, uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus just, uh, God took out every, all the anger that he had on us against Jesus, it's, it's that, I mean, that's sure, Jesus became sins for us. That's really clear in 2 Corinthians. But the whole concept of this passage is God is so much an ally of mine. God is so committed to this idea of me fulfilling his purposes in this world that he embraces every aspect of my life. That for the person who has lost a child, that for a person who is lost and alone, the person who doesn't know where to turn, the person who is in that place of darkness and despair, Jesus is there. 
the person who's had, had to give up everything in life uh, because of the place that God has brought them to, Jesus is there. On the mountain, where it seems like I'm going to lose everything, it turns out that God has already lost everything ahead of me. He's there to meet me with his love. And when, when God says, through your offspring, all nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me, the offspring he's talking about there, that's the same word used in Genesis chapter 3 when he says to the woman, someday your offspring will crush the serpent's head. Your offspring here, it's Jesus. He's the one who blesses the world. So the application for me is how can I be obedient to God like Abraham did? The thing is, like I said, it's going to be a lot easier for me. He's not going to make this kind of ask of me, whatever happens in my life. He's not going to ask me to do what he asked Abraham to do. So how much more in every moment of my life should I be saying, I can say yes to you, Jesus, because I can trust that you're going to be there. You're already on the mountain. You're already laying your life down. You're already being torn apart because of how much you love me and want to be in a relationship with me. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your word that speaks to us through thousands and thousands of years. Lord, how you have designed human beings for this special relationship with you. Lord, today in this coming year, I just want to offer my life and my family's life to you. Lord, I give, uh, I give Chelsea and Elliot and Augie and Zaley, I give them all to you. And I say, Lord, they're not mine, they're yours. You've got plans for their lives and purposes that they're meant to bring about. And Lord, I just want to be a part of that. I just want to, Lord, wash them in the water of your word and, and Lord, be open to you doing what you want to in their lives. Lord, for this church, for those that you've brought uh, under my leadership and guidance in terms of being a pastor, just Lord, I offer all, all of these people to you, Lord, that they're not mine and they're not, uh, Lord, some kind of, you know, attendance markers or tithers or givers that I'm supposed to look at or members. Lord, all of, of us who are here are yours. You purchased us with your own blood. You, uh, Lord, desired from the beginning of time to be in relationship with us. You're the one who comes to us and speaks to us in the darkness, speaks to us in the night, speaks to us when we feel that we're alone and says, I am your ally. I am on your side. I want to be in relationship with you I want to fulfill my purposes in the world through you. And Lord, we know that's true because we can see it in the face of Jesus. Jesus, who's torn apart on our behalf. Jesus, who goes up on the mountain, your son, your only son, and lays down his life because of how much he wants to be near us, of how desperately he desires a relationship with us. Lord, as much as you need us, we need you even more. We know that you choose to need us. You choose to want relationship with us. You don't have any lack that we fulfill, but you choose to need us because you know how much you are meant to fulfill in our lives through your presence. We just ask that we would experience that today and this year ahead and worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with us as we close our service and, and join a time of worship.